Dr. Manhattan's reveal catches even him off guard. The Mandalorian and Baby Yoda drop into Star Wars fanatics' favorite hive of scum and villainy, and Queen Elizabeth keeps her gloves clean of familial dirty work. Pinky's up. High tea with monsters, rebel scum, and vigilantes begins now. Welcome to episode one of High Tea with Monsters, Rebel Scum, and Vigilantes. I'm your host, Brett Ashley. I'm a lifelong fangirl of all things Star Wars, monster films, superheroes, and British history. I'm also a journalist, a mom to two young children, the wife of an audio fanatic who you'll occasionally hear helping produce the show. A super fan of tiny little cucumber tea sandwiches and scones served alongside a giant glass of Chardonnay and a doggy mom to two smush-faced dogs. You may occasionally hear pug snoring or bulldog huffing in the background. Sorry for that. I know high tea with monsters, rebel scum, and vigilantes is a mouthful, so on social media and occasionally other places you'll see and hear us referred to as simply high tea with Mrs. V. We are a week pop culture podcast that offers historical, literary, and comedic context for your favorite binge-worthy shows and movies. It's my personal hope that we become sort of a guilty pleasure, something you can turn on when you're settling in with a glass of wine or cup of tea, alone, or with your Netflix and chill partner. The film, live, and streaming television events we cover will vary from week to week, but will broadly remain in the realm of monsters or anti-heroes, Rebel Scum, or The Resistance, and Vigilantes, the saviors behind the literal or figurative masks who are meant to save us all. I will be welcoming a rotating panel of guests to add commentary, including pop culture academics, which sounds like the coolest job ever, screenwriters, actors, and other experts to round out the show. Now for the most important part. This show will contain spoilers that are current through the episodes that I'm about to name, which you will also see in the show notes. If we dive further into theories, conjecture, and speculation, it is only that. I have no inside sources confirming or denying the validity of our musings. I feel obligated to get this week's show out before Friday morning's episode of The Mandalorian, so this episode of the pod will be just me. Tonight's show, we will cover the following. HBO's The Watchmen, Episode 8, A God Walks Into A Bar, Disney Plus's The Mandalorian, Episode 5, The Gunslinger, and Netflix series The Crown, Season 3. Let's dive right in with The Watchmen, A God Walks Into A Bar. I'm gonna come out of the tunnel. We always knew that this day would come. You're not yourself. No, John. You're not yourself. My name is not John. I am so sorry. Hey, baby. 
We're in fucking trouble. Again, final warning. Spoilers through this episode. So if you have not yet watched it, please pause the show to remain unspoiled. I'm going to be honest with you all. While watching Angela Abar, a.k.a. Sister Knight, a.k.a. Regina King, roundhouse and nunchuck her way through badassery, honestly the likes of which I haven't enjoyed since Wonder Woman erupted from that World War I bunker and took down a German battalion on her own, a part of me is always thinking of Calvin back at home. He's cooking dinner, he's doing homework with the kids, tucking them into bed, waiting for Angela to get home for some hot closet sex. His commitment in a life as a stay-at-home hubby seems almost Stepford catatonic. So there's this scene midway through the show, I don't remember if it's episode three or four, where the children are at the breakfast table arguing about whether Uncle Judd who we lost back in the beginning of the season, is going to heaven or not. And Calvin sort of lays out for them that when we die, there's just nothing. Sort of in the way that is utterly opposite of how everyone I know parents. (laughs) Um, And it surprised even Angela, or did it, because as we learn in this episode, it seems like we are the ones on the receiving end of the surprises, and she has known all along. So I made an assumption about Calvin then that, I don't know, maybe the time that he spent together with Angela in Vietnam had made him sort of a Zen Buddhist, uh, that his trauma from the quote-unquote car accident that they've used as an excuse for his memory loss uh, might have made him sort of zone into a housework and therapeutic OCD style managing a clean, beautiful home that looks nothing like a home that has three children in it um, that I've ever seen. But that stuck out to me that he was so blunt with such young children about the existence or lack thereof of a deity figure. And when you put that together with what we learn at the end of this episode, it feels like something of the Dr. Manhattan inside of him um, is leaking out. That said, I was blown away, and I don't know if you all were, at the end of episode seven, when Angela took a sledgehammer to her husband's head and revealed him to be Dr. Manhattan, uh, saying, baby, we're in trouble, to wake him up as the 7th Cavalry surrounded their home. This was really well played by the actors, by the writers, and by everybody uh, who has a hand in The Watchmen because I think it was one of the greatest reveals of all time. We made so many rather dismissive assumptions of Cal as a figure who needed his wife's protection, needed saving. she was always rolling out the door with weapons in her cloak and badass costume while Cal sat at home reading books. And so when, you know, little mentions of the detective from the FBI coming to speak to him or references to him being such a great husband and so good looking, we really wrote him off as this figure that is a supporting character in the cast. And then anyone who
who has read the original graphic novel or followed the Watchmen since the 2009 film knows that Dr. Manhattan is a critical character to the series. The fact that he hasn't been up on Mars, as everybody has suspected, for the past 10 years is really surprising considering the um, place where we find him, where he's been hiding in a very un-Dr. Manhattan-like way and place. This episode was beautifully done with the romance of Angela and Dr. Manhattan, aka John, aka Cal, being set up in a way where for Angela, it almost took all of the surprises out of it. And as a woman who has been confronted by traumatic surprises since day one of her existence, it seemed, or at least since um, the death of her parents in Vietnam, it really seems like an ideal relationship for her. She has the knowledge of what the relationship is going to feel and look like from day one. And this is usually a stage of the relationships where you're getting to know your partner, uh, where the unpredictability of it can make it either exciting or nerve-wracking. For me, it was always more in the nerve-wracking category. I also do not like surprises. I like to know what's going to happen and keep everything under control. So as Angela wavers between belief and disbelief of what Dr. Manhattan and his, you know, blue appearance as he tries to win her over for a dinner date is experiencing is really well acted by Regina King. She is skeptical, at the same time hopeful, at the same time you can tell that she's trying not to let herself fall for this. She's on the defensive. Uh, She feels as though she doesn't share much with anybody in her life, so how can this complete stranger walk in to a bar and know everything about her past, present, and even future. So when we think about that in the context of their marriage for the next 10 or 9 years, and the fact that he knows that the right thing to do is for them to take in these three children that were actually her partners on the police force when the partner was murdered, it sort of sets into motion a very predictable life. And she knows it will end in tragedy eventually. She doesn't know how, and Cal will not tell her. But what Once she takes the implant that Ozymandias has given John as a token for which he can sort of live a normal life, feel a normal life, feel a normal romance, we go into a place where Angela becomes the most powerful person on the show. And I think that was always the intention. She really stands out even amongst her vigilante peers. They are order takers and she is a leader. She is someone who jumps to action whether she's in the right mode to do so or not. And I think that knowing that she knows what she knows about Cal's true identity makes it safer for her to take risks, risks that other people wouldn't take because she knows she can always go into his skull and take out that chip and get get him, you know, back to her in a way where he can protect her and the kids. I, I took some notes and, and one of the funniest scenes I thought 
in this episode was when Cal is in his Dr. Manhattan form uh, towards the end of the episode and the children are upstairs in their bedroom and Cal decides to go out, Dr. Manhattan decides to go out and walk on the pool. And Angela's understandably upset that he's sort of wasting time when they're in desperate trouble. She's like, get off that pool and, you know, help me. The children, just as just as easily as they were made to accept that there is no quote-unquote God, there's no heaven or happy place in the sky for dead people to go, were forced to sort of readily accept the fact that their father is Dr. Manhattan. They see him walking on water like Jesus, and I think that's not a call back to actual godlike qualities. It's, I think, sort of meant to be a callback to when he told Angela in the date in the bar that he could walk on water. This is his chance to prove it to her. So it's sort of a tongue-in-cheek relationship inside joke. Probably not the most well-timed from Angela's perspective. But the kids, you know, just sort of are looking out their window. So one of the other weird reveals that came through was that Cal had sought out Angela's grandfather back before making the change to remove his understanding of his own identity. And the grandfather, obviously, at first is is very dubious of who Dr. Manhattan is. Unlike the rest of us, he's had the luxury of encountering many superheroes, so he's not necessarily surprised to see a blue man show up at his house. But when Dr. Manhattan walks through the door and moves the chair, you know, with his mind, I think he gets taken a little more seriously. Don't forget, at this point, Angela's grandfather has been burned by many of his accomplices or the team that he joined that is actually sort of a big bigger part of Cyclops. Probably the most troubling part of this episode for me was at the end when Cal sort of transports the kid to Angela's grandfather for safety during the 7th Cavalry attack and she's sort of trying to put together in her head, did I do this? Am I the reason that Judd was uh, killed? What role does my grandfather have in this overall? What role does Lady True have in it? And you can see she's wondering if the actions that she took for love, the risk that she took in agreeing to be a part of Cal's life and, you know, marrying this uh, man who was the, you know, tragic result of a scientific experiment gone, gone horribly and painfully wrong. You know, was this the right move and what does this result in? And it'll be interesting to see see, hopefully they spell out the connection to back in the episode where Lady True buys the home from the couple with fertility challenges. You remember she sort of lets herself into a house in, you know, the outskirts of Tulsa with ample farmland and makes an offer to this couple that they can have a baby that she's created from their own genes if they sell her their house right away 
or I guess give her the house. She gives them no time to accept or decline, really. She sort of just says, I will destroy this baby if you don't take it. Obviously, the couple is wrapping their mind around this and they take the baby. And um, just as the ownership of the property is exchanged, something crashes into the field. And I believe back then we were meant to suspect that that was Dr. Manhattan, even through in episode seven, when Lady True says Dr. Manhattan is here and walking among us, I think we are meant to believe that Dr. Manhattan landed on the planet, you know, sort of from Mars or Europa or wherever he was in in that field. And what I'm thinking is perhaps that's actually Ozymandias as he makes his escape because in the timing of the exchange between Dr. Manhattan and Ozymandias back in 2009, I guess, when John makes the decision to have a chip put into his head to forego all of his prior memories temporarily. Perhaps the timing of Ozymandias' return to assist in whatever is coming in the final episode of possibly the entire series because the showrunners have made no plans to film or produce a season two. So this could be all that we get. So I imagine if that's the case, they're not going to leave anything on the battlefield, I think. But as fans of Uh, Game of Thrones or The Sopranos. No, they really sort of do sometimes on HBO leave a few questions unanswered at the end of a series. So in the event this actually is a series finale and not a season finale, we may get what we get. And if that's the case, I do hope we see some of this series questions resolved just for the sake of wrapping up some really beautiful characters character arcs. Specifically, one character that I don't want to leave unmentioned is that of Wade Tillman, or Looking Glass, who is played by actor Tim Blake Nelson. And what I found to be incredibly interesting, because I watched some post-episode interviews with him, Timothy Blake Nelson is Tulsa-born but he doesn't have an accent. I know that he moved to New York City. He studied undergraduate at Brown University, and then he went to Juilliard. So his um, accent may have been something that sort of fell (laughs) to the wayside, but he clearly lapses into it so genuinely in The Watchmen. You know, his character sounds the most Tulsa of anyone else around, and so clearly a um, brilliant casting decision by the team at The Watchmen. Interestingly enough, I didn't realize this either because the, the version of The Incredible Hulk from 2008, which I think was the Eric Banna Hulk uh, film that Tim Blake Nelson had a role in that movie as a doctor and that's just kind of interesting connection because obviously in the Marvel Universe the Hulk is very similarly changed by an event the way that Dr. Manhattan is, you know, sort of being trapped in a chamber as a scientific or nuclear or gamma radiation experiment goes horribly wrong and transforms these brilliant scientists into sort of freakish green or blue uh, characters with powers and capabilities that they never would have otherwise had. So, um, 
I'm really hoping that we see the wrap-up of Wade's character, who is definitely one of my favorites on the show. So that's my impressions of this week's episode of The Watchmen. I am sort of eager and sad to move forward to the next um, episode just because there's so many questions I have, but I'm very afraid that the 63 minutes that has been allotted for that episode by HBO will not necessarily answer all of them. And that would be a shame, especially if they decide not to continue producing this series next year or whenever they might continue or might not. So that concludes the wrap-up for The Watchmen. Let's move on to The Mandalorian. I can bring you in warm, or I can bring you in cold. So let's move on to The Mandalorian, Episode 5, The Gunslinger. If you haven't seen it, again, good time to pause. Go watch the episode on Disney+, Plus. come back. Episode 5 came after such a strong and beautiful episode by Bryce Dallas Howard. Episode 4, I thought, was about as satisfying an episode as you could get between the strong female leads, getting to meet Cara Dune, the strength of the Widow character who really showed us some human sides of the Mandalorian that we have not previously seen. I loved that toddler Yoda got some time with children in sort of a daycare style situation. The scene where he's eating the lizard and all of the kids scream, ew, is probably one of the most genuine childlike moments. And it was just really lovely to see that puppet you know, for having limited facial and, I guess, ear movements and expressions really conveys a lot. And it definitely harkens back to all of the puppets that George Lucas created and what you can achieve with a puppet. And I know that this week, I'd be remiss to, to not say that the puppeteer who was responsible for Big Bird passed away this week. And that's another, you know, Jim Henson creation, I guess, that had the power to move people in immense ways for a giant puppet. So it's really been a joy to see the characters that are alien, foreign, not human on this show sort of get their day in the sun. And, you know, Baby Yoda, I think, is more popular than um, anyone except or maybe even including Lizzo at this point in popular culture. So it feels like Baby Yoda can do no wrong. The one thing I do want to note is that we have not seen Baby Yoda use his force abilities since the rescue, the dramatic rescue from the client's science lab in episode three. And I do wonder how much of the process was completed where it seems like they were either attempting to remove his midichlorians or people might remember that from some of the less than stellar dialogue from The Phantom Menace. Uh, But if that's the case, then I wonder if he no longer has force abilities. You would think that he would implement them in some of those pretty important fight scenes in episode three when all of the Mandalorians come out to, you know, help Baby Yoda and Mando make a break from the guild bounty hunters who are chasing them down. Or in episode four, when clearly the village that he's got quite an affinity for in such a short time 
time, sort of have the children huddled together in danger and as you know, Cara Dune and Mando are running their reconnaissance and then attack on the ATSC Walker and the, the I don't know, for, for lack of better words, the barbaric intruders who sort of keep coming into the fishing village, the Krill village, to try and um, pillage the village. So all of that to say, leading into episode five, I was very curious if we would see Baby Yoda offer an assist in any way at any point in the show, and we did not. So episode five opens with your classic dogfight evasive maneuver and the classic stall the ship and flip around, come behind and, and destroy whoever was behind you. And that really harkens back to George Lucas's pilot and spaceship scenes in all of the original Star Wars films. You know, there's a lot of excitement whenever the Millennium Falcon flips itself around to, to fire on a TIE fighter or an X-Wing or um, A-Wing gets behind something large like a Imperial starship and can somehow outmaneuver the cannons to make a final run and blow the entire thing up. So really, even in such a short moment of time, they were able to convey a lot of the sentiment of you know star fights that we would see in a star wars film when they get beckoned into moss Eisley spaceport you will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy we must be cautious that moment oh my gosh was just everything um for a star wars fan we had wondered, many of us, if the guild and the client that you know we saw in episodes one and three were actually on Tatooine. Uh, it was another sort of desert planet. There were Jawas present on that planet, but now we know that that is not, in fact, the planet that we were on for episodes one and three. So in this episode, we get a little bit more information than we had in hand about where we are and where we've been. Tatooine and specifically Mos Eisley Spaceport are, of course, well-known uh, Star Wars lore locations, the um, birthplace of Anakin Skywalker and where Luke Skywalker was hidden and where Ben Kenobi was in hiding until Luke found him with R2-D2 and C-3PO. Right upon landing, we see this sort of pit droids with Amy Sedaris's wonderful character, and it was such a delight to see her in that role, sort of with some Sigourney Weaver alien-type uh, hair and just unbelievably hilarious in in her role as you know part-time repair uh, woman and part-time babysitter so the the pit droids that we see are either the same or similar to what we find in phantom menace working on all of the um, pod racers in young anakin skywalker's uh, sort of breakout scenes but when they land we see this sort of toddler behavior out of toddler yoda i guess now we call him because he's walking and making deeper throated sounds so mando instructs him to stay here on the ship while he goes to negotiate repairs and find a gig to pay for the repairs and of course toddler yoda just 
you know, wanders after Mando, um, which seems to be a, a theme. He's never far from him and clearly believes that Mando is, you know, the closest thing he has to a protector with good reason. So when Mando heads into Moss Eisley Cantina, there are a number of Easter eggs that are popping up all over the place, and I won't hit on all of them, um, but I will touch on a couple. So the first is, if you remember in A New Hope, when Obi-Wan and um, Luke Skywalker, C-3PO, and R2-D2 roll into the bar, the bartender says, we don't serve your kind, to C-3PO and R2-D2, so droids are not permitted as guests in Mos Eisley Cantina at the beginning of the original trilogy. Now, uh, in events taking place after Return of the Jedi, suddenly droids are finding new work because the bartender in Mandalorian is a droid. And then, you know, Mando sort of asks for uh, a lead on some guild work, and it's clear that that kind of work doesn't take place anymore in this the post-imperial world on Tatooine. So that's kind of an interesting change. So seeking this work, we see Mando turn around and take notice of a young, you know, quote-unquote gunslinger named Toro Calican, played by Jake Cannaval, uh, who is Bobby Cannaval's uh, son. And he is clearly trying to get into the bounty hunting line of work. He's pretty wet behind the ears. Mando recognizes the puck target of uh, Fennec Shand, who is played by the wonderful and hopefully not the last we'll see of her, actress Ming-Na Wen. Uh, many of you will remember her voice from the animated Mulan film. Mando kind of says, well, good luck with that because she is, you know, a badass, <laughs> which is so great to see in a show um, like this where there's just so many badass women who, you know, don't need rescuing. And I think that that, to me, has always really been the best way to honor what Carrie Fisher built in the original trilogy. Will somebody get this big walking carpet out of my way? We wouldn't have a lot of the characters that we celebrate now uh, without Carrie Fisher's setting the precedent. You know, she, from the minute that um, Luke and Han and Chewie rescue her on the first Death Star in A New Hope, makes it clear that she's not really one to need rescuing. You know, she's going to grab a blaster and get herself out of there. And not only that, she's going to tell everyone around her what to do. Before she died, Carrie Fisher lamented uh, a lot that she never got to wield a lightsaber. And it's my understanding from some podcasts that I listen to, like Now This Is Podcasting is one of my absolute favorites from makingstarwars.net. But it's, it's clear that Carrie had a larger presence planned in episode nine, um, Rise of Skywalker, she was sort of supposed to be the central figure of the film, the way that Han Solo was in Force Awakens and Luke was in The Last Jedi. So when she passed, the scripts had to be rewritten and her role had to be downsized and relegated to footage that was 
you know, sort of archived from um, the previous films that, that was unused. Uh, it'll be interesting to see, too, if they relied on her daughter, Billy, who is also featured in all of the um, new trilogy films, how they might incorporate her as a stand-in, you know, for flashback Leia scenes, the hair and you know, Mark Hamill, we know, is credited as, as appearing in the upcoming film. So maybe as force ghosts, maybe flashbacks, who knows? But Carrie is really the reason that we get these tough-as-nails women characters in this world. And she, um, I think she would be pleased with what is being delivered now. I don't think she would be pleased, though, if what we see at the end of episode five is actually the death of Fennec Shand. That would be a huge miss on the part of directors. It would be a huge miss on the part of the series as a whole to waste not only, you know, the talent and the potential of Ming-Na Wen in one episode, but to have the first, I guess, maybe second woman of color that we see die immediately and at the hands of such a rookie, unlikable character. But in any case, back to the Easter egg. The, this new gunslinger. We see him sitting in the same booth that Han Solo and Greedo got into their fatal shootout. <laughs> and it's interesting because you can see it's sort of a throwback to Han Solo in body language and mannerism and cockiness. So we'll we'll have to see um, if anyone in the show <laughs> who is dead is really dead from this episode. I think there's a lot of potential for folks to be stunned and not killed. Uh, it's you know, everyone in any of the Star Wars movies seem to have gotten shot or stabbed by a lightsaber. Everyone from Finn to Leia to a couple of hands lost amongst the cast. So that that remains to be seen. Now, this is purely wishful thinking on my part and some internet speculation that I've read um, seems to make me feel not alone in this um, theory. <laughs> But many people wonder if at the end scene of this episode, Fennec Shand appears to be her body unless she's just uh, critically wounded, is lying in the desert sand after she has been shot. I'm sort of wondering who it is that walks up to her. I think we're all wondering who it is that walks up to her and bends down to check on her. And I think the scene is reminiscent of a couple of old characters, probably intentionally. So the first thing I thought when I saw that was how much it reminded me of the scene where the sand people, or I guess we now call them Tusken Raiders, more PC. The Tusken Raiders have attacked Luke Skywalker as he's looking for Ben Kenobi in A New Hope. And when Ben comes out in his long cloak and hood covering his face and R2-D2 is sort of hiding and watching, Ben bends down the same angle though that this mystery person bends down to check on Fennec. And he, you know, sort of 
uses his force sensitivity to check on Luke and realizes that he's just fine. So it seemed like, especially because we're on Tatooine, we're in the same setting, we've had a really fascinating exchange with the Tusken Raiders that I'd like to come back to in a little bit here. We see, you know, this kind of moment where it could be anyone, but I, I don't see enough, as I've rewatched the scene a couple of times, I don't see enough of like a hand going towards the forehead in a force sensitive way. So I don't believe it's, you know, a Jedi hiding out on Tatooine to save her. But who knows? We don't know where Luke is. We don't know where anybody is in that precise moment because we're in a timeline that we've never visited before. So the theory on the internet and throughout wishful thinkers like myself is that the person walking up to her to Fennec is actually Boba Fett. And the reason people think that is because if you go back to Empire Strikes Back in the scene on Bespin where Leia and Han Solo are betrayed by Lando Calrissian, whenever Boba Fett is sort of walking through the hallways of um, Bespin, uh, the Cloud City, he is, he's got spurs. The sort of noise of his spurs, a lot of people have played side by side to the sound of the character walking up to Fennec at the end of episode five of The Mandalorian. So that could be a fascinating twist, especially for those who thought that Boba Fett had perished in his tumble into the Sarlacc pit when a partially blinded Han Solo accidentally knocks him off (laughs) the cruiser that they're on. And if you remember, C-3PO has a line about how long it takes people to die once they're in the Sarlacc pit because it takes the monster uh, up to a thousand years to digest its prey, which if you're a bounty hunter with a jetpack, especially if you're a Mandalorian in Mando Beskar armor, um, maybe you have a chance to rocket yourself out of that situation and continue living on Tatooine. And if that's the case, then, you know, I'm hopeful that we will get to see Mando and Boba Fett in the same universe. There's so much we could talk about in this episode. The One of my favorite scenes is when we have the encounter with the Tusken Raiders. Again, this is such an Easter egg back to A New Hope, where Luke and C-3PO are looking for Tusken Raiders, and they see the two Banthas that are down there in the desert, but they don't see the riders. And all of a sudden, you know, the riders are right behind Luke, and they hit him with their staffs, and destroy C-3PO momentarily and, you know, Luke's too busy looking through the binoculars to realize that they've crept up on him. The exact same thing happens here with Toro Calican looking through his binoculars and, of course, there's the Tusken Raiders just outside the view of his binoculars, so for he can make any green mistake. The Mando stops him and begins to communicate with the Tusken Raiders using 
practicing sign language. And he is negotiating passage across the Dune Sea, which they will need to be able to traverse and to get to Fennec Shand. And it seems the Tusken Raiders are sort of receptive to that transaction. It costs Mando nothing. Obviously, he's giving away Toro's own <laughs> binoculars, which is great. But that scene, to me, is the first time we've seen anybody treat the Tusken Raiders as the natives of Tatooine that they are, that's rewarding to see. And we don't know much about this race from the encounters we see in not only A New Hope, but also in Phantom Menace and The Clone Wars, because in in A New Hope, you know, the first time we've encountered them, I guess, if you're looking at it in chronological release order, not sequential release order. They are pretty rough and and a threat to Luke and C-3PO, R2-D2, and um, Obi-Wan. And then in The Phantom Menace, you get some sort of fan-friendly shots of them watching the pod race and shooting at pod racers just to mess with the race outcome, which is kind of cool. But in Clone Wars, as Anakin really begins to turn to the dark side and realizes that his mother has been taken hostage by the Tusken Raiders, they're perceived to be a pretty um, terrible group of of bandits and and violent uh, assailants. So they have stolen Anakin's mother. Um, Anakin goes after them and ends up massacring an entire village of the Tusken Raiders. And Obviously, because we know that in sequential order, these events happened before A New Hope. We know that this wasn't the only tribe, uh, the only village, because Tusken Raiders exist, you know, two episodes later in A New Hope. And I think the Mando's line about, you know, they think that this is their home, it shows a respect in Mando for natives and for... uh, the order of things that seems more genuinely aligned with the force and interconnectivity and interdependence of different species really speaks to his character that he has somehow mastered communicating with them and kind of chides Toro for making an assumption. And I'll leave with just, again, another call for hope that this is not the last we see of Fennec Shand. She definitely did not deserve to go down being outsmarted by Toro Calican and is glad to see him get his comeuppance in the final sort of shootout at the docking bay. Um, another thing that I've heard on a couple of different podcasts is the query as to whether that's the same docking bay uh, at Mos Eisley Spaceport that the Millennium Falcon was docked at. I credit Weird Al Yankovic's Star Wars Cantina song from the 90s as the reason that we know this to not be true because Moss Eisley Tower beckons the ship in to um, docking bay 35 and in the lyrics to the Weird Al song say, you know, docked in bay 94, stormtroopers at the door. So that's where Han Solo's uh, Millennium Falcon was docked before it took Luke, Obi-Wan, C-3PO, and R2-D2 off to their adventures in space. And then final note, John Favreau, 
whose brilliance I just cannot say enough about in the creation of this show. He's such a fan of Star Wars, um, but he's also such a loyal supporter of actors and actresses who he's worked with previously. He reuses the same actors and actresses that he has spent his career with uh, over and over again. And uh, one nod to the relationship with Amy Sedaris is that if you remember in uh, the movie Elf, Will Ferrell's movie Elf, John Favreau was the director. Amy Sedaris played the secretary to Buddy's father in that movie. So that that's a fun connection. I love seeing that. Um, so that's a wrap for episode five, The Gunslinger of Mandalorian. So we are running low on time this week, and I don't want to try to cram too much analysis of The Crown into the last five minutes of the episode. Um, What I do want to do is set up how we'll discuss it next week. The first two shows that we discussed on episode one, uh, The Mandalorian, and prior to that, The Watchmen, prominently feature characters in masks and what that means for the character, for their safety, for those around them. Um, What we see in The Crown, not just in season three with the new cast of characters, but also in seasons one and two, are the masks that the are the masks that the monarchy must wear um, in all things, all manners of their duty as public servants, um, while also upholding themselves to be the highest standard of uh, character and family and values within the United Kingdom. Um, Season three is just amazing to watch each episode transpires in a new light compared to the sort of um, ebb and flow of Elizabeth and Philip's relationship that had a large part in seasons one and two. I'm rather delighted to see uh, center stage going to the eldest children of Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, particularly Charles and Anne, the roles of whom are played flawlessly, and one cannot overlook or overstate the role that Helena Bonham Carter plays as Princess Margaret, and she truly um, dominates every scene that she is in. She really embodies this character of the flawed princess who would be queen, and you can see uh, almost a bit of envy rising in Queen Elizabeth in the um, ability of her sister, her younger sister, to sort of take center stage so flawlessly where one gets the sense that for Elizabeth it hasn't always been that easy. Um, So rather than rush to cram uh, into the last four or five minutes of the show, a synopsis of any one of the episodes. I'd like to turn to each of you who are fans of The Crown uh, to ask what you thought of some of the very impactful, um, tragedy-laden and uh, love-lorn episodes of season three of The Crown have meant to you. For me specifically, 
I grew up um, with a mother who idolized Princess Diana. I think most of us in my generation had family who looked at Princess Diana as um, sort of an emblem for what not just British women, but women the world over, mothers the world over should be like. Um, so for me to see this pre-Diana Prince Charles so astutely acted in this role and um, to see the sort of um, beginnings of his relationship with Camilla and the complicated love rectangle between uh, himself and Parker Bowles, Camilla and his sister uh, has been really eye-opening for me, but also the portrayal of Charles as sort of a sympathetic character who you imagine would, like his mother, have preferred to have seen the crown settled on somebody else's head, and this is really a duty he is doing. Um, that he has no say in the matter of. And as Elizabeth um, reaches what one can only imagine is the end of her tenure in her lifelong role here in 2019, um, we can only imagine what sort of king Charles will make and what these influences from as early in his life as his 20s and college days as a theater uh, major or studying uh, drama at Cambridge can have influenced on him in his um, moment as he prepares to take center stage. So rather than offer my own analysis uh, going on 45 minutes here of myself talking, I really look to you, the audience, and I have a couple of speakers lined up for next week to talk a little bit about your read on the family dynamics amongst the House of Windsor, how what you've seen in The Crown season three has impacted your opinion of what you feel about the House of Windsor today in 2019. And I would ask you, of the shows that we have looked at today, um, The Mandalorian and The Watchmen and a little bit The Crown, if you had to choose a parent from one of those three shows, what would that parent be? Um, could be... Cal from The Watchmen or Angela from The Watchmen. It could be Lady True from The Watchmen. It could be The Mandalorian who um, tends to abandon Baby Yoda on ships when it's convenient. Um, could be Queen Elizabeth. Could be Prince Philip. Uh, who would be the parent of choice from the three shows that we've talked about today? I look forward to diving into that more with you all next week. I will have prizes to give away to the first three people to comment either on our Patreon site or to provide a five-star review on iTunes for this week's episode. Uh, and I will read your answers on air or provide you with the opportunity to do so via voicemail. Um, so that concludes our episode for today. Remember, keep your pinkies up, keep your head held high, and we look forward to discussing more with you next week of your favorite binge-worthy pop culture shows. I'm Brett Ashley, and I will speak to you soon. You an alien? What? I'm out of space, an alien. No. Well then, son, you've got a condition. 
special thanks to Dylan McKenzie, the composer of our theme song, to Sure Incorporated for providing our microphone, and to Audacity for our podcast recording software. I am Brett Ashley, and I am the writer, producer, and host of the show. Thank you for listening.